to Pop Screen, Geek Show's podcast covering movies either starring by or about pop stars. No other podcast covers such a broad range of musical and cinematic genres, from hip-hop to country, from documentaries to science fiction. I'm Graham Williamson, a film critic for The Geek Show and Horrified, and I'm joined by... Ewan Gledo, hello. Hello there. Where can people find your work? Uh, they can find me on Northern Lights, Clapper, uh, Geek Show, and Cult Following. Right. And of course, you were last here covering Spice World, and you've, come, was, back, yeah. you've come back um, for a film described by its star Neil Tennant as, and I quote, arguably better than Spice World. <laughs> well, he, he is correct in saying that, I think. Um, <laughs> The, the bar has been set very high, of course, but it, uh, uh, yes, it is better than Spice World. Uh, his duo partner, Chris Law, was less charitable, suggesting the tagline should have been a wank of epic proportions. Yeah. Uh, but its director, Jack Bond, only half-jokingly called it the first post-Brexit film, and its fans have run the gamut from St. Etienne to the BFI, who recently treated it to a lavish reissue. The Pet Shop Boys would not normally do this kind of thing, hey? 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 Oh, hey. no. It's going to be full of those today, isn't it? Completely, yeah. <laughs> Stop listening now, listeners, if you're allergic to puns. <laughs> Uh, but they did do it once, and it was called It Couldn't Happen Here. So, had you seen this before, by the way? I didn't know. Um, I hadn't either. I a, a couple of weeks before you invited me on the podcast to do this, I was thinking, oh, if I've released It Couldn't Happen Here, that would be interesting to look at. And mm. then, by, by just some severe coincidence, I've got to, I got to talk about it on here. Um I don't know, I think my, my interest in this film sort of stems from being interested in sort of weird oddities of British drama that have been forgotten about. And this sort of fits right in to what I was looking for. Um, had you seen this before? I never had, no, which half surprised me because I was very, very into the Pet Shop Boys as a kid. But yeah. Also, you know, when I say that, I mean, I bought their Greatest Hits collection when it first came out when I was like nine. And I don't think there's much to entertain a nine-year-old in this movie. No, definitely not. I don't, I don't think there's much to entertain at all. Um, it's, <laughs> it's, a, it, it, it's a succession of Monty Python-esque skits that don't have an end and they just sort of mash together in this Odd, odd timeline. It, yeah, it is a very strange film. It is uh, one of the very rare number of British road movies, uh, in this yes. case, from, is it Clacton to Scunthorpe? It, I think so, yeah. It's, um, it's yeah, our room 66. Right. <laughs> it is. It's, it's the defining route for British holiday makers. <laughs> That's one reason why I guess there are no British road movies because you've run out of country as soon as the movie gets going. <laughs> yeah. But when you're deliberately aiming for absurdity, it's less of a problem. Yeah, definitely. I think they, they, they do get that absurdist style right on the nose that to, to, to both benefit them and sort of steal away the show almost it's um those absurdist notions i mean it, it, straight away the intro of the movie 
on on the yeah. beach and there's um dancers and there's uh what are they called there's just a lot a lot going on on that beach straight away where it's like right okay the 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 starting with this note of absurdity they're not going to relent and give us any sort of clear narrative almost mm. and i think you have to have a very sweet spot for that kind of thing to enjoy the film although fortunately Absolutely. fortunately i do it might be relevant to note that during the shoot they also made the video for rent which was directed by derek jarman right and there are bits of this that, if, if you're feeling in a charitable mood, do resemble that kind of non-narrative style that Jarman was experimenting with in stuff like The Last of England and The Garden. Yeah. Neil Tennant said they probably didn't work because they were talking a lot about doing it in the style of Ken Russell at a point when Ken Russell was about as unfashionable <laughs> as he's ever been. I would like to see Neil Tennant take on the Devils, but um, <laughs> this, the I, I actually, you know, I understand that sort of comparison that he's made. That it, it it does feel not overuse the word, but that absurdist notion, sort of mm. what they're aiming for. They do pull it off well. I think I, I don't know. I think I'm just too stringent when it comes to I enjoy narratives because um, mm. there is one here it just I think to me the incorporation of the music which is you know crucial to any any film that wants to rely on uh, the image of, of singers and songwriters is um, it uses their music too much and, and uh, so yeah. often yeah I can kind of see that because the, the origin of it was that they were going to do this very spectacular theatrical tour to promote actually which uh, was the album that's just come out. And it's yeah. probably, I mean, it's not my favourite Pet Shop Boys album, but it's up there and it's probably like the album that defines them. Like when people yeah. think of the yeah. Pet Shop it's, Boys, they think of that record. It's actually the one with, um, it's a sin on it. Was that the one? Um, yeah, yeah, that's the got, one. That's, it's it's yeah. a sin, heart, what have I done to deserve this and rent. Yeah. Okay, uh, so it's yeah, bulletproof stuff, really, singles oh, yeah. wise. Yeah, uh, so it's got all that, and they were going to do this massive theatrical tour with English National Opera until someone totted up how much that would actually cost, <laughs> and uh -oh. they realized it would actually be significantly cheaper to make a movie instead. It's incredible. I mean, the budget for this was four million, and I think about 80% of that budget went either on dry cleaning Neil Tennant's suit or <laughs> background extras just to sort of doddle about. And it's, I don't know, I think it's, I mean, it's money well spent. I think, honest to God, it's such a strange, unique film. I don't think anybody else could have made this at the time it was made. Mm. Um, its inspirations are very clear, and I, yes. I do like that. Um and even then, I think uh, if, if we look at sort of the Spice World movie, th that's such a, a, a clear shot narrative, three-act structure. Pet Shop Boys, and it doesn't happen. Uh, it, what's it called? I can't even remember the name of it. It couldn't happen here. Couldn't happen here, yeah. It, it doesn't have that narrative structure. It's just sort of, here's a presentation of all our great songs set to the backdrop of a couple of weird scenes. And I do, I do appreciate that. I think I appreciate it more than I enjoyed it. Mm. Um but going back to what I said about the Spice World movie is it's it's nice to see something different done 
with the sort of pop image that the Pet Shop Boys had at the time, because this this released in '88, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, '88. So around that time, they're they're pretty popular. Yeah, it's it's and what if... tennis has this lovely phrase where he says every pop band has an imperial phase. And even if you're big forever, you only get one period where you are absolutely the hottest thing. And yeah. this was definitely their imperial phase. Oh, absolutely. Because after this, it was... Um, what did they do? They did... Um, it was uh, Introspective after that's this. That's the one, yes. Yeah. Which is a good album, but it's kind yeah. of... It already feels like they're, they're thinking, ah, three-minute pop songs are a bit easy, aren't they? Can we do something yeah. else? Which, which is a good way, a good perspective to have for it as an artist where it's, you know, we know how to do pop songs, we know how to be popular, but we want to make a different brand of music or a different bit of interest. And I think I listened to, um, I think it was Yes before uh, coming on the podcast today, and that's a very good album. Yeah. Um, it's, it's far removed from this sort of pop, but it's got the same, you know, stylish choices and lyrical style i think it's it's very different of when they were at this point in their career i don't think they would have gotten a movie out of the songs on yes mm. well yes is interesting because they did it with that's the one they did with the xenomania isn't it it's got love etc so, yeah. yeah yeah and that was at the point where again xenomania were in their imperial phase they were girls allowed yeah. to regular producers they defined what that era of mainstream pop sounded like so it's going back to that kind of actually ethos that kind of three minute pop ethos but as an older person who knows how to pull the levers and has seen the inside yeah. of the business which in a strange way was always kind of Neil Tennant's thing because he came, he was a pop star after he had wrote about pop stars for Smash Hits. Really? Oh. Yeah. He was a writer for Smash Hits, like in the, oh, okay. in its very early phase when it was yeah. an absolutely vital force because it was the first magazine that... It came at an odd moment, I guess, because there had always been like music magazines and music yeah. weeklies, but things like the NME and Melody Maker were starting to define themselves more as rock magazines, right? And sort of splintering off like that. And into that vacuum where there used to be a music magazine that covered everything, you have Smash Hits, okay. which started covering pop music in a way that still feels very modern. It was very irreverent. It was very up to the minute. It was like unapologetically trendy at a time when the other magazines were going for this kind of high seriousness and dissecting Smith's lyrics. Smash Hits was the <laughs> magazine that would just sort of take the piss out of Howard Jones and his stupid dancer for a bit, you know. <laughs> Sounds like an ideal magazine, that, yeah. The the world could do with another smash hits, I think. Oh, yeah. definitely. It's, um, well, I, I'd not heard of that. It's a sin that I hadn't. Hey! I, got, I got one in. Uh, that's, <laughs> I had to get one in. But, um, yeah, I think influence-wise, you can definitely see where Tennant's music comes from or where it goes. Mm. I think that's always been very clear for him. What What isn't clear for me in this is what they were trying to do I think that's my yeah. big issue. 
I think you, you have a point where you say that the music and the movie do not mesh harmoniously because yeah. part of what the movie is doing and one of the connecting threads of it is it is about that kind of the, the shabby end of British heritage. You know, it starts off with Neil Tennant buying some seaside postcards <laughs> and that's very much the world it operates in. Yeah. And although I think the Pet Shop Boys of about that lyrically, you know, something like Suburbia, which plays in here, is, is very keyed into Yes, it. definitely, yeah. It's quite weird to hear this kind of big, brass, shiny 80s synth pop playing over footage of like a rainy weekend in Clacton. <laughs> That's quite odd. It's it's very jarring at times. You know, it, it's when the film opens on that sort of dark beach and it pulls back and it's, I think it's... um. I'm not sure what song was playing at that point. I think it might have been It Couldn't Happen Here. It was, when, when, yeah. When the camera pulls out, and it's just sort of so odd. And then Neil Tennant's on a bicycle, and then he buys some postcards, and it's sort of, he's going through the routine you would on a holiday in Clacton. <laughs> yes. But set to songs that feel more akin to, you know, nightclubs and sort of pop synth mm. vibes. Um, I think it, it doesn't gel well, but I think that's intentional. I, I, I do think that that's no mistake. They weren't in the editing studio. Thought, oh well, this this uh, West End girls doesn't really fit with Clacton, does it? I don't know what we're yeah. going to do here. But no, I think it's um, there's the scene in the restaurant or the bed and breakfast with Barbara Windsor. Yeah, and and that just confused me. I, I don't know if they were trying to do a bit of like slapstick comedy there with the the giant suitcase and then the the big breakfast or if it's just sort of a commentary on seaside resorts, I'm not sure. I'm glad you mentioned Barbara Windsor because it is a really interesting use of her. And uh, obviously she died in uh, just about a month ago, as we recall this. yeah. Yeah. And I understand why her obituaries were dominated by Carry On and EastEnders. You know, I get that. But in the 80s, people forget that she was actually doing some quite adventurous things. She was in Comrades, the Bill Douglas film about the Tall Puddle Martyrs, which is, oh. I mean, that is quite some way from Carry On Camping. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, this, even, this even thing this, like part yeah. of that. Yeah. Because yeah, it... I think it uses her screen persona very well. Like, there are interludes of sort of brash knockabout comedy with her, and she does play a kind of working-class maternal figure that you would associate with a soap yeah. run. It's just in a really different context that I found kind of invigorating. I, there aren't, there just aren't enough British films, I think, take national icons and do something unexpected with them in my opinion you're right I, i'd agree with that there's not many films that can say oh we had barbara windsor but she wasn't just playing you know cannon fodder comedy for carry on it was sort of a, a genuine role that represents mm. something here and it's it's i think it's definitely really well done and especially later on in the film when they're saying yeah. um what have i done to deserve this and neil Tennant's in the phone box and they contrast it with her on the phone i think that's a really good scene, and I, I, I've not seen much from Barbara Windsor, but I couldn't think of any scene where she sort of shows that level as a performer. 
No, I would, I would agree with that, yeah. And I don't think there were many films that would even give no. her the chance, to be honest. But Which is a shame, because here she does show that she can operate mm. on that, that next level, the next step up that yeah. all the, the comedy actors of today are sort of clamouring to. Um, I don't know, she, she's not in the film that much, though. Apart from that scene and the scene in the bed and breakfast, there wasn't any... There's another one where, which again riffs off her kind of carry on image, but you know the scene where they're at the seaside and they have the peep show? You put a. Oh, yes. I think that's yeah. the It's a Sin scene, isn't it? That's where they do It's yes. Sin. Yeah. yeah, she's the French maid in that. Right, okay. Because a lot of the cast members, supporting wise, do play more than one role, don't they? Yeah. Um, Gareth Hunt just... is, is the like. He's the clown, the sort of irritating joker guy in the bed and breakfast, and he's also a salesman. Um, yes. There's Joss Ackland, who plays a blind priest and a serial killer. Wow. That's, <laughs> jo that's Joss Ackland is <laughs> fantastic in this film, I think. Yes. Um, I think as uh, utilising the performance does it very well. I think they, yeah. they think, you know, we've got X amount of cast members and X amount of roles to fill. We'll just put these people here and, mm. you know, dress them up a bit differently. And I think it does work. It adds sort of a, a homely layer to it where it's a seaside resort, it's a small town. Everyone's sort of cropping up everywhere, but as different people. Yeah, and I think it also adds a kind of it, not a structure because it's a surrealist road movie and that's two things yeah. where structure is kind of hard to do, but it gives a sense of cohesion to it that otherwise yes. wouldn't be there. Yeah. I think what, what little cohesion you can get from this film is <laughs> in the cast members and how they sort of appear from time to time, especially uh, Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe ap mm. appear in the same uh, costume the entire way through. The yeah. Uh, the the biggest is... surprise for me, the thing that struck me immediately, is Neil Tennant's a pretty decent actor, isn't he? Oh, he's not bad. Like, genuinely, yeah. he's... I guess that's in part because he's a performer. And I think uh, most... I'm not saying all, because there are some... No, I think uh, there are definitely... There are people who were very good behind a microphone on stage, but you put them in front of a camera and they just don't have they it. They fall to pieces, yeah. I think... Tenant and especially Law, who sort of compared to his on-stage persona as just the man at the keyboard, not saying a word, but has funny hats. Yes. He does very well uh, in an actual speaking role. I think that's the first time I've ever heard him speak. Um, <laughs> but no, the, the two of them are really good. Uh, mm -hmm. Really good performances from both of them. I think that's that, that's the most important part of it couldn't happen here. The, 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 the central protagonists and the singers themselves are mm -hmm. quite good. Yeah. Which is more than could be said for Spice World. Yes. Um, More than could be uh, said for like about 98% of films Madonna's oh, done. <laughs> yeah, I suppose so. That's, that's quite true. Mm. Um, but yeah, they're, they're really good. At, at the core of this, there are two good performances surrounded by supporting actors that are quite good, like Barbara Windsor, like um, Joss Ackland. Mm. Um, I, I just, I think for me, it's either the script or the direction that doesn't quite work. And I'm not sure, I don't think it's the direction actually, because some, some of the scenes are very nicely done. It does um, look incredibly stylish. Yeah. Yeah. It's the, the scene when they're on the pier at the fun fair and they use yeah. the mirrors. It, it looks marvellous. It looks really, really well done. 
but then you have a scene where it's just quite static and it, mm. and the, the tone shifts so violently and quickly that it's it just feels a bit out of place um I mean, purely visually, I have a great soft spot for the bit with Joss Ackland and his school kids raising the crucifix on yes. the beach. Because that was it, incredible. it looks like a KLF video, but at a point where the KLF hadn't worked out who they were supposed <laughs> to be yet, it's so ahead of its time. I think that, well, I mean, that's probably the reason they use it on the poster for the film. It's yeah. just, uh, I think that's probably. It's ironic, really, that the most defining part of the Pet Shop Boys movie doesn't have the Pet Shop Boys in it. It's <laughs> yeah. just Ackland dressed as a blind vicar on a on a pier with some children. Yeah, that is quite ironic, isn't it? That <laughs> feels like a, a synecdoche for the whole project. That We've got this great thing that we're going to market it hard on. It's not the one with the band we're making a film <laughs> about, but, you know, looks good. It It works. It does look good, and I think that that that's consistency throughout that the film does look good mm. um but but what it's showing doesn't make much sense if that, if yeah. that makes sense and i i i am kind of fond of films like this i think every reference point that i've mentioned whether it's jarman or russell or whoever is something that I am basically pretty wild on. So I enjoyed it a lot. I think even yeah. for my tastes, the problem with doing a non-narrative film is it's hard to make it feel like it ends rather than just stops. And this does yeah. feel like it just stops. That that it's was quite, my big problem. It's not sudden, but it definitely feels as if it's trying to lead into some sort of closure. Mm. When it, it really doesn't need it. It opens rather randomly. Why not? close on something just as equally open-ended mm. yeah I, I think it, it doesn't stick the landing but individually i find most of the scenes pretty delightful i never thought i'd see chris lowe throw a plate of eggs at barbara windsor <laughs> you know, that's an experience <laughs> i've had now it's oh it, <laughs> i think that's chris lowe has possibly some of the best scenes in the film he's got the the packing the giant suitcase, he throws the eggs at Barbara Windsor, and then he sort of just. Um, I think it's Neil Tennant that gets the brunt of the the ventriloquist scene. But, yes, um, which which is just so oddly fascinating that it it works as its own little skit or concept, where it's just Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe laughing at a man dining with a ventriloquist dummy, who who begins musing on philosophies. Yeah, the ventriloquist stomach has like a long monologue about the nature of linear time, which feels like it got lost on the way to an Alan Moore comic. <laughs> it's it's a very even by the standards of this film, that is a very strange moment. It's it's full of strange moments, and I think more than a few of them are very endearing and rather likable. Mm. Um, you know, there, there are scenes where they just plonk us into something and think yeah this might work who knows yeah. and then and then whenever inevitably they do kind of work it is sort of yeah that's a pocket of nice content there it feels not obviously it's not structured it's not got mm. any sort of uh narrative purpose but there are moments within that are sort of skit based where it sort of feels like a sketch it'd be more akin to sort of 
a short burst of energy that could start and end there rather than be connected with all these different other scenes. Yeah. Like that scene with the venture of the quest, that could be just sort of contained without mm. really any effect on the story. Well, that's the scene I mentioned earlier with Joss Ackland as the serial killer in the back of their car is very similar to a Peter Cook and Dudley Moore sketch called Mini Drama, where <laughs> I think it's reversed in that one. It's Cook's like a peer of the realm who hitches a lift with a cabbie played by Moore who turns out to be a serial killer. But the tone of it is very similar, and I did wonder whether that was like a conscious influence there. It, it seems like one. I think Jack Bond's direction is full of unconscious... Uh, what's the word? Unconscious um, inspiration. Mm. But I think at the same time, he's very conscious of those uh, Dudley Moore sketches or the odd sort of... Like Barbara Windsor, I think, is a, a great casting choice, but I think that was intentional. It feels like you should get Barbara Windsor for this. Yeah. So I think it, it's a nice blur of these are decisions that they're making on purpose to sort of define the film. And then they're just seeing what happens when you mix all these different ideas together. Yeah, some things of it are definitely more gut level, but I think it actually has, I mean, for all the narrative isn't coherent, I think thematically it is kind of coherent. It's about a sort of fading empire at the end of the 80s, trying to take stock of its past and how that affects your sense of self as well because you see Tennant and Lowe as kids during the Sin sequence and it's about how being brought up with those traditions affects you as those traditions that you know you hate but still you were brought up in are dying yeah I think what you said about sort of taking stock as well it definitely feels like that it's sort of We've hit the peak. This is our big blowout to sort of explore new avenues. And it mm. it definitely feels sort of, uh, as much as I didn't like it, as much as I thought I would, it, it feels like uh, the end of that era for them. Yeah. That Pet Shop Boys sort of take a different route after this, where they made remixes and stuff like that. Mm. Um, as, as far as the film goes, it's sort of, it was that scene in... The I think it was just after the peer segment where they're in the theatre watching mm. a play and then the, the blind vicar comes on the stage and starts shouting for them. Yeah, yeah. Um, that sort of... I don't know why that stuck with me, that scene, but it it sticks with me ahead of the rest, sort of, because it has a, a clear message of what it wants to say about the Pet Shop Boys rather than, you know, the, the ventriloquist dummy musing on life. I suppose the thing with that scene is because that's a scene that involves their childhood, so there is at least a clear emotional investment. You know who you're meant yeah. to be feeling for rather than just watching the whole thing as kind of a... I mean, I know the Pet Shop Boys absolutely hate everyone talking about their work this way, but I'm going to have to talking about it as a kind of ironic thing. Yeah, I think... It... I understand why they hate people talking like that, but at a point it is inevitable that we would have to talk like that, especially considering the the context of the film. Because mm. um, not 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 to knock them, but none of it comes across as uh, genuine, if if that's the right mm. word for it. it. It all comes across as well made and well put together, and it has some sense of meaning behind it. But the the nature of its of its prose and its writing is it feels kind of not mockery, but sort of not genuine definitely not 
I think any emotional pulse you get to it comes from songs like the title song or Rent, which are emotional in their own way. I think maybe people couldn't see that at the time because this idea of pop as being entirely synthesizer based was kind of new when I think a lot of people missed the emotion of it at the time because they didn't feel like they were hearing real people playing. But listen to it now, you can't miss it, I think. Oh, absolutely, yeah, agreed, definitely. I think the the, the pockets of emotion throughout the film do work. Mm. I just, I think I wish there was more of it, but then that would sort of ruin the vision that I have of the Pet Shop Boys as these sort of, you know, we don't really know much about Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe, especially yeah. Chris Lowe, who sort of keeps himself to himself. And it's like that, uh, how he is in his performances, where he's very stoic and silent. He doesn't mm. move around a lot, he just plays his music and gets on with it and I think there is there is a nature of that in the film where especially Law who sort of comes out of shell of it but there's mm. still no there's still a barrier between what the Pet Shop Boys are and what audiences perceive them to be especially in this sort of context of filmmaking yeah yeah because I don't know what what would you say was their primary sort of image at this point because I was reading through old interviews with Tennant and Lowe and there seems to be a running theme of we like that this song was popular but we expected it to hit people in a different way I think it's whenever whenever someone said Petra Boys to me before this film it was it's the actual actually cover where Neil Tennant's yawning Chris Lowe's got they both got suits on that's yeah. what I think of when the Petra Boys and it's sort of saying yeah, we're pop artists, we're big, here's the suits, we're all this, but we are quite bored of it and we're not yeah. engaging with it. We're rather... Again, it says what... Um, it goes back to that that part of the music that they don't like people to talk about where it does feel like they're knocking the genre a little bit if, mm. if they're presenting themselves as not interested in it. And I think that sort of goes back to Neil Tennant's journalist years as well, like... Chris Lowe is a really intelligent, opinionated guy, but part of his like public persona is obviously based on this idea of uh, wouldn't it be great if pop stars just didn't talk you know, <laughs> rather than talk shit all the time? It is a vast improvement for him to say very little. But I think, yeah, I, I, it's nice to see him do something different in the film. You know, because mm. I, I honestly, I, going into this, I was expecting just say nothing. Yeah, just be yeah. Sort of slightly behind um, Neil Tennant the whole way through. I remember watching uh, the Go West video, and when they're on the sets writing the chorus, <laughs> Neil Tennant's at the front, and Chris Lowe's sort of off to the back a bit. And I understand that he doesn't like spotlight; he just likes to engage with the music, and he likes to make music, and he doesn't mm. want anything really to do with the pop lifestyle. And to be honest, I think he does get that across in the film because mm. you've got Neil Tennant in this suit the whole way through. Chris Law's got sort of a denim jacket and some some jeans on with a with a yeah. working cap. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> well, so he Tennant's, does play up that well. Tennant's image is so wonderful in this because he is <laughs> like a character from an early Noel Coward play who's just sort of come out <laughs> into this shabby Thatcher Eva Britain of fading seaside resorts and thought, hang on, where the hell am I? <laughs> there is a lovely quote by Bill Drummond from, again, the KLF, who did a, 
collaborated with them on a remix of So Hard. I think, yeah, it was So Hard. And he said, the thing about Neil Tennant is you meet him and you think, this is a university lecturer. And then suddenly he starts singing and you think, oh my God, it's Neil Tennant. And I think that comes <laughs> across very well in this movie. Definitely, yeah, because a, a lot of his dialogue, or, or at least a good chunk of it, is actually just the lyrics to his songs, but in spoken form. Mm. And there are times where that works really well, um, yeah. especially with the, the scene with Barbara Windsor where they're on the phone together. There are times, though, where I've just thought, yeah, it's it's just shoehorned in. I think it was, mm. it might be preceding or after the It's the Sin segment, where it just sort of speaks the lines and it's, I don't know, if, if that's to replace dialogue, then I don't think it quite works. I liked it when there was kind of a disjunct between the song and the dialogue, like when there's been a song and they start saying dialogue from another song and there's that pleasurable yes, yeah. second where you just think, oh, yeah, that's... But as you say, yes, when you've just heard It's a Sin and suddenly Neil Tennant's on voiceover going, at school they taught me how to be... Yeah, we know, <laughs> we know, we heard it. It's, uh, I think... I mean, I don't mean to knock the discography of the Pet Shop Boys because they do have a varied discography um, and they have a lot of different songs. I feel like they rely on the big songs a little too often throughout mm. this. I think yeah. it's a sin to use quite a lot and it couldn't happen here because it's the title track. I think it opens the film. It's used halfway through and it might close the film as well. Um, mm. it, it feels not overutilised because obviously at, that, at this point in time, they're new artists. They've got a couple hit songs yeah. and have a, a very stringent repertoire to work with, but I think a bit more variety. They could would, have cut deeper. Nice. Yeah. yeah. It's quite weird because at this time, at the time when actually came out, like maybe this is why it isn't in the film, but every single uh, like fashion show or consumer affairs show or anything like that was using the song Shopping as their backing uh, music, and you thought, yeah, you haven't yeah. listened to the lyrics of that, have you? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's it's a testament to their abilities to craft sort of pop songs, though, where it does mm. have an underlying message underneath it, much like the film does at times. But people are just taking it at face value. Oh, he's made a shot song about shopping. Great. Yeah. yeah and that's yeah. it. But there's so much more to it than that, and I think it, it comes across well, where I've probably missed quite a lot of the underlying subtext of the film because I'm so focused on the message and the image that's brought into the mm. film. I'm more focused on Jack Bond's direction and what he's presenting rather than what it's meant to define. Well, we've mentioned Jack Bond a few times, so I think we should sort of dive into him and how he came to be yes. attached to this project because his history, he collaborated with, I think it was Jane Arden, who was a very, very underground experimental filmmaker in the 70s, but that wasn't what brought him on board. After he did the films with Arden, he was taken on board the South Bank show, which at the time was like the premium arts show on television. And he made documentaries about people like Salvador Dali. And I, I'm a huge Patricia Highsmith fan. And Jack Bond's yeah. Patricia Highsmith documentary is cherished in that fandom. It's really significant. Yeah. But the thing that the Pet Shop Boys had seen of his was a South Bank show about Roald Dahl, where 
it, it interviewed Dahl, who was still alive at that time, but also had him like meeting and interacting with characters from Matilda and Charlie in the Chocolate Factory. And so the concept of it was basically to do that with the Pet Shop Boys, to take characters who could exist in a song like Suburbia or Let's Make Lots of Money and have them actually meet Neil Tennant and Chris Lowe. See, that, that's really good. I like that concept and ha- the reasoning behind bringing Jack Bond in there is it, it's perfectly sound and it's reasonable, but I, I, I'm dubious as to how much of that they get away with. Mm. I think one of the things that maybe muddies it is that it also kind of has that sort of seaside postcard quality and that end of the piece yeah. stuff, which is... I think it's interesting, and I think it's an interesting statement on late 80s Britain, but in terms of, purely in terms of expressing that concept, it is not native to Tennant and Lowe's work, I think. Yeah. It it, it definitely shows in the soundtrack, I think. I, I hate mm. to keep coming back to that, because that is probably the strongest part of the film. But I think it's also the, the least utilised in the sense that the quality isn't quite there for how it presents the soundtrack. Mm. I um, think sometimes, and I'm going to bring up that dread word again, sometimes the songs appear to be used ironically, like the Always On My Mind sequence, which is done yes. with Joss Ackland's serial killer. And it's not a natural location for, like, what at that time was probably the one unironic love song that they'd done. yeah. It's it's just it feels out of place, but I suppose what's the alternative if they were really set on using that song? There's nowhere else it, it could fit in. So, yeah, and they prob they probably had to because it had just been yeah. such a massive hit. And yeah, it it is. It, I think they just yeah. about get away with it. Yeah, definitely. I think there's there, there's definite definite comedy to be had. Seeing mm. you know a murder in the back of a cab while Neil Tennant mouths the words to. To possibly their most popular song. Yeah. And then, I don't know, I think it, it either needs to go further with its intentions of sort of this weird mixture of comedy and musical, mm. or it needs to find some common ground and just set itself on the right track. Yeah. And, you know, I, I kind of liked that jumble, but it, I have to keep adding the disclaimer that I am a sucker for this kind of uh, sort of mixture of cinema du look and surrealism that we're talking yeah. about here, I guess. It's one of those things with British films of the 80s, I always find they can get so much out of small budgets. It always reminds me of something Neil Jordan said about being the company of wolves where he'd just come off making Angel, which was made for no money, and this was his second film, and he got $2 million for it, and he was running around the set thinking, $2 million? We can do anything with $2 million, while all of the set hands were thinking, what? We had Return of the Jedi in last week. What the hell are you talking about? Well, it's, it's interesting that you bring up the budget, because I think uh, It Couldn't Happen Here was made on $4 million mm. or, or thereabouts, and the, the actual, you know, the, the, the quantity they get, the variety of sets and, and characters, for four million is very good. Yeah, it, absolutely. It well to use it. Um, yeah. I mean, the airplane scene is really oh, yeah. terrific. It looks gorgeous. Yeah. 
I think a benefit of that is sort of they don't really need to pay much for the the song licensing because the musicians yeah. are involved. So a lot of that budget restraint goes to you know a bit of extra costume here or then mm. the Chris puppet there. And you've got, you know, you don't have to pay many cast members because you keep reusing people in yeah. different roles. Yeah. It's a very smart way of managing the budget. Yeah. I think it's it's one of those films where it is all on screen. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that guy in the airplane, by the way, is uh, Neil Dixon. And it's kind of a cheeky casting choice because... He had just, I can't remember what the film was called. It had It's one of those films with a, a ridiculous subtitle. But he'd been in like a reboot of Biggles, which tried oh, to bring right. it up to date with time travel. <laughs> and it absolutely uh. tanked. And like about uh. two or three years later, he is in a direct parody of that. <laughs> well, circle of life, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, I think if... If your sort of if your type as an actor is World War One fighter pilot, you only get so many opportunities to do that. He's not too bad here. They utilize him quite well, and, it, and I think it's he's very seem... funny. Yeah, he is. Yeah, there's that bit where he's um, in the... is it him they're staring at in the restaurant, or is yeah, it the, um... yeah, yeah, they're staring at him. He's just sort of not shifty eye, but very uncontrollably uncomfortable. And that afterwards, one of the things that like drives him mad afterwards is that he's going over what the ventriloquist's dummy is saying, and he's <laughs> furious. Finding, the dummy's a damn existentialist. <laughs> <laughs> That's possibly the best line in the film. Yes, it's it's just so out of the blue, and it's it, it's just a nice subplot. It's got a hmm. it's got a nice closed end, which obviously we said. Uh, for the film as a whole isn't something it should have had but as that little subplot sort of starts and ends within scenes of each other it's just a very nice little distraction do you think that could have worked better if they'd moved it to the end i'm thinking about how that scene resolves itself and i'm thinking all right it's not exactly an ending still but i'm watching stuff get shot and blown up and i suppose there's something climatic about that yeah i think if 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 jack bond had panned the camera up on a nice golden meadow near the seaside, and he turns the camera, and there's a World War One fighter pilot, and the only line he says is, that dummy's an existentialist, and then just have a nice fade to black. <laughs> Perfect. It would have yes. been magical. Yeah. It's and then an, an explosion for good measure. And nobody's perfect for the 80s. <laughs> I think it's, it's such a strange mixed bag. Mm. Um, you know, the songs are great, the cast are great. I, I just think it it lacks some sense of direction. And that's not a bad thing for Jack Bond. I don't mean to speak ill of him because his direction here is nice. He makes a lot of well, he makes a lot of good scenes. He makes Mm. a lot of interesting little points, but I don't think there's enough detail in them. He presents, Mm. you know, like the, 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 the cafe scene is probably the best scene with the ventriloquist and the World War I fighter pilot. There's no details in the background that are just sort of, on that wavelength of weird or zany or wacky that are presented in the forefront. So you've got the World War One fighter pilot thinking of a dummy's existentialist crisis, but some of that might come across better if it's just sort of a throwaway scene or if it's not mentioned, but it appears, yeah. if that makes any sense. Yeah, I, I think it's 
it's one of those things where I can see the flaws in it, but I can't really understand how you'd address them without spoiling what the film is. Yeah. No, I understand that. Um, it, it's it's a very difficult film to manage because at, at the same time there is a lot to manage. It's subsequently, nothing. It's yeah. It's an odd one to sort of deal with, but that was sort of the Pet Shop Boys' image at the time was. Yeah, we come across as having nothing to us, but if you actually listen to the lyrics and dissect them, there is quite a lot of subtext. Yeah, and I think maybe their problem was that they were too subtle for the 80s as a decade, <laughs> maybe, which is just yeah. a, a blunderbuss decade. What's that? <laughs> is it Love Comes Quickly, where it's got that picture on the sleeve of Chris Lowe with a like baseball cap on it just says, boy. I think, so. <laughs> I think so, yeah. I remember yeah, um, Neil Tennant that, yeah. saying like he thought that was going to be their coming out moment and people would stop <laughs> asking them about their sexuality and everyone just thought, oh, it's boy, because they're called pet shop boys. <laughs> that, that, that's the level people were on in the 80s. I mean, it, it doesn't help, I don't think, either that the 90s that followed were just this sort of loud and eccentric, but instead of sort of what the Pet Shop Boys define it soon moved to sort of neon lights and, um, you know, kind of in-your-face moments of music. Yeah, yeah. I think there's a kind of... Um, I don't know how you'd define the 90s with that. There is as much spectacle in 90s pop, but by that point, everyone seems to have grasped what the Pet Shop Boys were doing, and every pop band in the 90s yeah. seems to be... a pop band in inverted commas <laughs> you know yes yeah i think it's it they, they made very subtle music in a time when there wasn't room for subtlety mm. it had to be in your face it had to be explosive synth note pop or it was just forgotten that was it and then when you the, the interesting thing is talking about the pet shop boys in the 90s when you look at the music that they released in the 90s it's some of their most hard on the sleeve stuff there is yeah. no irony there is no critique in say a v-day it is literally just a love song do you think that's to do with how they age no i'm not saying that they're old but if you listen to their most recent uh, album i think it's hot spot mm. it's sort of they, they've mellowed out a bit they've sort of not not toned it back or dialed it down but they've sort of made their peace with that empirical giant endeavor they were at first and have sort of moved into a more grounded approach even i think that's part of it yeah and i think there's something that i remember chuck paulinuk saying once that after a while even someone who defines themselves as being against everything has to work out what they're for but yeah. i think also, part of it is just that shift that they realised that when they were stacked up against bands like Culture Club and the Human League, they had a reputation as being the more kind of intelligent, satirical, subversive ones. But yeah. after a while, everyone started to do that. And so, ironically, it became not very subversive at all. <laughs> I think... Um... For, for the few people that were trying to define the Pet Shop Boys as more than pop artists at the time, I think it couldn't happen here. It does a nice job of sort of throwing people off the scent of what they were trying to do. Because mm. this doesn't feel like what the Pet Shop Boys were defined as. If you take the scene with the murder in the back of the cab, 
mm. and just sort of the random inclusion of certain songs. It's sort of saying this is what we could be, but we're yeah. not going to define it as definite. And the other thing is that 80s pop scene was defined by being modern and cutting edge and being about the latest technology, the most advanced production. And of course, the Pet Shop Boys always had that. You know, they were working with producers like Trevor Horn and Harold Faltermeyer, who, you know, were really capable of introducing a level of technology into commercial popular music. But... The film isn't about that. The film is kind of downbeat and archaic and shabby in a way that I think is interesting. I don't think any other pop band of their generation would do this. Like maybe if there was a if the Smiths had made a movie, it would be quite <laughs> similar to this, I think. But Yeah, definitely. The, I the think Pet so. Shop Boys were positioned very differently to the Smiths at that point. Yeah. It's quite a delicate position to be in as well. You know, you've got expectations from a mass audience saying we want mm. more pop sounding music, but then critics were starting to sort of dig their claws in and say, well, it could mean this, it could mean this. So I think the only solution that they had at the time was to blow it all up with a film like this. Yeah, yeah. And I think it is such a dangerous time for a pop star, that moment yeah. when the critics start to gain to you because when you like a band and everyone else thinks they're dumb, but you think they're clever, that is wonderful. That is like a secret yeah. handshake. You know, <laughs> I, I was slightly too young for them when they started out, but I imagine part of the beauty of being a Pet Shop Boys fan in that very early age was that you are the people who actually understand the lyrics yeah. to shopping, you know. <laughs> and it's not as if it's, I mean, if you just listen to music as a sort of, I like the sound of this, mm. it doesn't matter about the lyrics and what they're saying. If you listen to that, which probably a vast majority of people do, you miss those little touches that were in the lyrics from Tenet mm. and Low, where it is a criticism or a, an attack on a certain aspect of culture that they didn't like. And it's mm. really well done, but it's it's lost on a lot of people. I think, I think it's still lost on people today to some degree. Yeah, and I think... You know, there were a lot of bands in the 80s who were doing this from different angles. I mentioned the Smiths, and the Smiths got on the radio, but they were still positioned as an indie band at a time when indie bands weren't that big. Uh, You had the Beautiful South doing it with more of a kind of Radio 2 kind of chart pop, but still putting quite barbed stuff in there. And then you have the Pet Shop Boys who have this, you know, wonderful ambition to say, well, we can actually be the biggest mainstream pop band in Britain and also be, you know, sophisticated and satirical at the same time. I mean, maybe no one really achieved it that well. So normally when smart people get to that level, they're just eaten by the machine, but they never were. I think maybe they were smarter than the machine then, if they didn't maybe. get eaten up by it. Maybe that's think, it, yeah. Would would you say, like, with what you just said there about sort of the, the big defining group of a period, would you say the Pet Shop Boys were that group for the late 80s? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, when they started off, they had a lot of competition from the tail end of that new romantic era. Yeah. Uh, who were doing similar kind of stuff, but that fizzled out quite soon after the Pet Shop Boys came around. And I think they quickly proved that they could 
absorb influences from things like acid house and uh you know even hip-hop to an extent that yeah. other british bands of their generation didn't really understand yeah i think i'd agree with that yeah i think because even now if you if you say oh name a couple of british pop bands from the 80s mm. petra boys is probably going to be one of them yeah yeah that'll come up with a lot of people yeah they've definitely cemented their legacy i just i'm i'm wondering how many people that could say oh petra boys are good i like it's a sin or west end girls how many of them are going to say oh have you seen it couldn't happen here <laughs> yeah i'm not yeah. i'm not sure what it does for their legacy as a pop group it, it feels like it mm. checks a box of they've done a film yeah, it, it is... didn't it didn't dent their career, but I think that's largely because no one saw it, you know. <laughs> um, but I, I, at the same time, I was still kind of saddened that when the BFI treated it to this lovely reissue last year, uh, they did no interviews about it. And I get the impression that they are slightly embarrassed about it. And I think, well, you know, when you compare it to a lot of pop, films and certainly a lot of pop films in the 80s i don't think they've got anything to be embarrassed about no i don't think it's anything to be embarrassed about i think it's a nice little oddity of british culture that people Mm. can discover or it's oh the pet shop boys did a movie i'll check that out and regardless of what they think of it i don't think any review or critique of it couldn't happen here is going to be that it's embarrassing because it's Mm. not it's it holds up very well considering it's it's a pop group making a movie. Yeah. And I think, again, it's that level of awareness of the pitfalls that comes from them being smart, that comes from Tennant's background as a journalist. But when they met Jack Bond, they discussed all of the things that they didn't want to happen. And I think every single one of the things they didn't want to happen is in Spice World, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, it couldn't happen here. Yeah. Uh. <laughs> and, and it didn't. But no, they they do very well to avoid those sort of uh, cliche pitfalls of what mm. the film could have been. And again, if like you've mentioned there, Spice World is an amalgamation of everything that could have gone wrong had producers and executives said this is how the media defines you and this is how your music defines you then mm. this is how the film will define you also and they do very yeah. well to fight against that i think one of the other things that probably militated against it is this is very early on in the kind of mtv era and there were yeah. a lot of critics who were just out to get anything that smacked of a pop video yeah yeah it was a form that it seemed to be getting bigger and bigger, but without gaining respect in the interim. You hadn't had that period in the 90s where directors like Spike Jones and Mark Romanek come up making pop videos and people think, oh, better take yeah. this seriously. Yeah, it was if, just... if you think that at the time of this release and the only, the only music video I can think of that would come anywhere close to that sort of level is, um, was it John Landis that did... Um, Thriller. Thriller. Yeah. yeah, and Martin Scorsese was bad. That was a weird choice, wasn't <laughs> it? Scorsese for bad. It's like there's like a. I, I know there is a sort of running theme with Michael Jackson's 
like career that for every album he would have one song that was meant to try and sort of reconnect him with black culture and yeah. sort of yeah. make it to put the defense against the charge that he'd sold out by just appealing to a white audience and bad was yeah. that but when he did it for Dangerous, he got John Singleton to direct the video, and you think, well, that yeah, makes exists, sense, yeah. but Scorsese? <laughs> I mean, no, great director, but... Just an, an odd combination, which yeah. is like when you said that the Petro Boys actually met with Jack Bond and they liked his work. It Jack Bond and the Petro Boys doesn't seem too big of a stretch for yeah. collaborations. Yeah, um, I think so. Yeah. I mean, they could, theoretically, they could have done it with Jarman and that would have made sense and you'd have had, yeah. like, the queer aesthetic in it as well. But I like that it is just a bit off that centre. You know, it's not quite yeah. spot on. It's got an interesting mix of different viewpoints sort of bubbling along in it. I think that's part of the appeal, though, that it has mm. so much in, in regard to its viewpoints and it's and its notions of sort of what the Pet Shop Boys are. It has a lot to discuss, but it does feel a bit left of field in what it could have been. And it's I that, think that yeah. is more endearing than anything it's that else. dissonance. It's like, like I said, yeah. it, I, I was sort of took aback by how much I enjoyed it. But I think if yeah. it was like, if it was better from a narrative standpoint and if it was more coherent from a thematic standpoint, yeah. I probably wouldn't have enjoyed it as much in a weird way yeah I, I think i would have enjoyed it more if it was a bit more coherent but i understand what you say where mm. the beauty of the pet shop boys's collaborations with jack bond is the fact that it can't be defined to one single thematic or storyline it has so much going for itself that it sort of throws the scent off of critics yeah which is quite nice I think it is. And, you know, it, uh, that, that feels like a nice point to end after we spent like an hour talking about the Pet Shop Boys movie you'd say <laughs> is kind of beyond criticism. So, well, we, we, listeners, we could have saved you a lot of time by coming up with that one first off. <laughs> we should have opened with, we, we don't know what to say. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, it is, it, it is very far apart from anything I imagined a Pet Shop Boys movie could be, and I enjoyed yeah. it for that. Yeah. I, I think I understand. I appreciate it more than I enjoyed it. I appreciate that it's the Pet Shop Boys sort of defiantly signalling the end of their first era as mm. pop artists. And it's a nice note to go out on. I'll, I'll give them credit for that. It's. I, I don't think it could have gone any better. Yeah. And they moved yeah. on from this and they did Behaviour, which is my favourite album did, of theirs. Yes, so... Behaviour's a fantastic album. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it worked out well in the end, really, didn't yeah. it? Yeah. <laughs> happy endings, isn't it? Yeah. And that's uh, the happy ending for this week's episode of Pop Screen, listeners. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe to our social media and get advanced news on what we're doing for next month's episodes. Uh, if you've subscribed to our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash The Geek Show, you can get one exclusive episode every month, as well as our other movie podcast, Director's Lottery, which is all on Patreon. But until next week, uh, I've been Graham Williamson. I've been you and Glow. And we'll see you later. Bye.